Amen. Man, we are blessed to have these guys lead us in worship. I always, uh, I always try to be very careful in the wording of this, and so I will try again. Um, uh, thank you guys for y'all's preparation. Thank you for your uh, commitment to uh, practice and to come. And even when things don't go uh, all that perfectly, they still go smooth enough for us. And so uh, let us thank God for the talents they're entrusting so well. Great. What a great way to start. Um, and, and you have been set up perfectly um, for our conversation through Scripture this morning um, because the entirety of what we are about to uh, look at um, is hinged on so many truths that we just proclaimed in singing together. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, be continuing a conversation uh, and not actually finishing all the way, uh, but at least finishing the next section of dialogue um, in John chapter 3 uh, with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, if you're here last week, um, you've heard Chris begin this conversation and get through some of the beginning kind of fumblings and stumbling blocks of the understanding of where we are and how it is going. Um, and then we paused, um, and now we will pick up in verse 19 and just go through verse 15, uh, continuing some more of those stumbling blocks, continuing more of those um, awkwardness of trying to, to sort out Nicodemus, trying to sort out who Jesus is and and, and how does this faith thing actually work? Um, and so that's what uh, we are going to be doing this morning. Um, but I invite you, before, be, perhaps before we uh, read Scripture together, it's going to be helpful for us to maybe pause and reflect. Um, if, uh, if, again, if you weren't here last week, you can always hop on the website um, and hear the uh, sermon audios there or watch the videos and catch back up. For all of us, as a reminder, whether we were here or not, um, we started chapter 3 getting introduced to this character. The character's name was Nicodemus. And we knew from Nicodemus in his introduction um, that he was a leader of the Jews. And we see him coming, not by day, but by night, to have a private conversation with Jesus. He identifies Jesus. He makes his opening statement, is a proclamation about who Jesus is. And he identifies him as a teacher of God. A great title. As we said, a great starting place. Just a sad finishing line. Jesus replies bluntly to this uh, proclamation and makes the declaration to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is where we start our little bit of the awkward feel back and forth nature of this because Nicodemus is, has this super awkward response and question about how can that be? Do I crawl in my mother's womb again? How does this process work? Uh, and as it really is, gets kind of confusing and gross to think about. Um, but Jesus is patient with Nicodemus uh, and he continues to instruct him uh, in verses five through eight where we see some Old Testament references um, where Jesus really begins to speak of the process of salvation, uh, this concept of a spiritual birth, a, a birth both of water and of spirit. It was there that he was reflecting upon um, Ezekiel 36 uh, and essentially concluded that from that, that, the, that this rebirth is what is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, and, and to add on to that, that birth, not something to be accomplished by man, something only, uh, only he as this, and the, uh, through the work of the spirit can accomplish. Um, because after all, as he said, uh, the spirit is like the wind. It goes where it wills and it chooses what it chooses. So is it with salvation. He has chosen uh, the way of salvation. 
And so today we're going to continue that conversation. We're going to pick back up uh, and we're going to see Nicodemus just as lost, just as perplexed. Um, and as we saw a patient savior to Nicodemus uh, last week, we're so going to see it again this week. And we start off with a question, maybe even a, a frustration or maybe even the despair. Um, everything that he's been doing up until now, all his understanding of this isn't on track. It was missing the point. Uh, and so that's where we're going to start. And so I'm going to invite you um, to open up your Bibles or turn them on, navigate over to uh, John chapter 3. We're going to be reading from the ESV version. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, feel free to grab one out of the chair in front of you. If one's not immediately in front of you, we will have it on the screens. I will make mention that if you don't have a Bible that you can call your very own, feel free to take that one home as a gift from us to you. We know that you'll be blessed by your time in it. Um, but for now, I'm going to ask all of us to stand um, as we respond uh, to God's words. And sometimes I get, um, I, I know this is something I like to do with y'all together, so thank you uh, for doing this with me. Why I wanted in particular to have us stand in reverency of God's word this morning is because for me, it is, an, it is a reminder of how easy it is to respond to God's word with a physical action, and yet how desperate I am for his spirit to do the much harder work and to transform my lives and change uh, the way that I, I know who I am and how I behave to align with who he's called me to be. So thank you for doing that together this morning. But let us read uh, and hear from John chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not understand I'm sorry, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here are the very words of our Lord. Y'all may be seated. So Nicodemus is here. He started with his question. He's still at a loss. He's proclaiming out, how can this be? It isn't that, again, it isn't that Nicodemus doesn't get the reference. It's not like he doesn't know Ezekiel 36. It's not him asking, how is this be like, this is something new I've never heard of. No, he clearly has heard and knows and probably has memorized Ezekiel and probably could, could easily identify with the connection Jesus was making, but where he missed was the correlation or the application of what Jesus was making. He knew the reference, he just didn't understand what it referred to, and namely that it refers to Jesus, because you see that um, what Jesus is making clear to Nicodemus is that in Nicodemus' world, in the uh, pharisaical, legalistic um, world, Nicodemus was entirely concerned with how he could justify himself, how he could stand rightly before God. But that's not the point here, where Nicodemus took his problem of sin as something he needed to solve. Jesus says, no, this problem of sin is not in your control to solve. It is in me. The application of what that is is not to turn you to your own ways. It is to turn you to my ways, to my offering of salvation. 
This is what Jesus marvels at, I think, at how far Nicodemus misses this point of application. This is why he gives this rhetorical question in verse 10. Look back down. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? In essence, he's saying, how do you see all of this and yet not see me? How do you understand so much about the Old Testament and not see that it is entirely written for you to point directly of who I am? How do you long for, from your understanding of the Old Testament, for a Messiah, yet miss him when he's sitting in front of you talking to you? A teacher of Israel, how sad it is that even in all that that you know, you've still missed it. Look, Nicodemus, you've missed it. You're missing the point. You don't have it together. But that's okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. I'm going to tell you now what you've missed out. This is why in verse uh, 11, he begins with, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, Chris talked about this last week, right? This was the, uh, hey, pay attention, look up. You know, this was his, this is the message that he was trying to convey into this, that Jesus is trying to capture Nicodemus's attention. And I think this is appropriate here for Nicodemus for us to see this is the capturing of his attention. I actually think that was the purpose of the rhetorical question and not the insight. This is kind of that, yeah, for all of you cultural references out there, the hello McFly moment. Is anybody home? Now you've, you've missed that. Don't miss this because this is where it all turns around, right? Um, but it's not just even that. It's not that every time truly, truly I say to you is just there to capture the attention. Something more unique is going on here. And bear with me as we dive into some of the technicalities, but um, actually even with uh, the word usage and the uniqueness of these words, uh, there's a greater conveyed thought that is going to be important to how we understand the second half of this verse. You see the the Greek word here translated uh, truly, truly, or for those of you like me who memorized scripture as a young boy in uh, uh, King James Version, verily, verily, right? Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, this word in Greek is imein. It uh, sounds very much like our English word, uh, amen. And actually, it is only, imein, is only a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, the same thing, transliteration meaning Greek letters for the same sounds that Hebrew words. And the Hebrew word is also imein. Now, the Hebrew word imein comes from, I think we got a slide of showing you both. There's the Greek. Here's the Hebrew. And both the Hebrew and Greek... Um, actually convey a thought and are built upon a word basis that is talking about how secure something is, how firm it is, how founded something is. So I main is something that is secure. This is why in the Hebrew text, it was used at the end of a passage to convey how secure all of that was. It is the truth, so it be. Let this be true. This is the proclamation in the Hebrew text when it finished with I main, as it said, Uh, It was always looking back at the security, the truth of it all. I had a a Hebrew professor who had a joke that he said, when a Jew hammered in his tent stakes, he better put them in an amen place or he'll be saying, ah, man, later. (laughs) That's about as well as I went over with the class too. But it is, it is this notion of security. It is this notion of groundedness and firmness. And again, traditionally, it was used at the end of a statement, but Jesus didn't use it at the end of the statement. He used it at the first, probably to highlight that he was the one bringing this truth. That's why it always follows, in all of the Gospels, it follows I main with, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Now, it is unique that here in John, we always get 
this phrase doubled. In the rest of the Synoptic Gospels, it's always used just once. So in Mark, actually, it's used uh, 13 times. In Luke, it's six times. And the most is in Matthew with 31 times, where it is simply just, I mean, I say to you, truly, I say to you, only once. Only in John do we get Jesus' teachings with the double, I mean, truly, truly, I say to you. Because I think John is making, a, imploring a, a device here uh, to let us know that it is not also him proclaiming something that is secure. It is also him testifying to his own ability to proclaim it. Now again, it's a little bit complicated, but don't miss it. It is not just him testifying to what is true. He is testifying to his ability to be a witness for the truth. Because again, we know this from the overall theme and overall uh, purpose of the book of John uh, that we had found um, uh, actually in the end of the book um, where it says in verse, I'm sorry, scroll down through it. In verse 31 of chapter 20, it says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For you know that this was the whole purpose, a three-part purpose that we've already covered, a witness recorded so that a belief was manifested so that a life was actualized. Remember, a witness led to a belief that leads to a life. This is the threefold progression. And what Jesus is doing here is he's proclaiming, I am the witness. I have the power to testify to myself. It isn't that I just know the truth or I'm aware of the truth. It is that I authored the truth. The truth orientated with me. It originates with me. This is why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why emphasize all this? Why spend so much time on the truly, truly, the uh, testifying of Jesus to his own witness? Because I think uh, the writer here recording John, recording Jesus' words, wants to make sure that we set up not only just with that attention grabber, but also to the purpose of that attention. Because the rest of the verse makes a shift here. Look at the pronouns. Watch how they shift. Look down in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we know have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You see the switch in the pronouns? See what happened? It's not truly, truly, I say to you, I speak of what I know. I can testify of all these things. He switches and he says, we, we speak, we know, we've seen. Now, it may be true that Jesus is talking in an inclusatory sense of all those who have put in faith, but I agree probably with the scholars who take this as uh, Jesus directly reflecting his ability to be the witness because he himself stands a part of the Trinity. Why does he get to say we do this? Because he is a part of what the truth we just sang earlier, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He can bear witness because it is of he himself. And so after hearing this great testimony, after seeing Jesus is divine and hearing him bear witness about himself, what should be Nicodemus' response? What came after the witness? A belief leading to a life. But unfortunately, that is not what we see here. But instead of believing and receiving life, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and in fact, it is because you don't believe. You haven't received our testimony. You've heard it. We haven't accepted it. So there's no belief and there's no life. 
I think this is actually the true indictment. The harsh statement is actually here in this reality, not in being talked down to as a teacher, the teacher of Israel. Um, This, the fact that he does not have citizenship in the kingdom of heaven because he has not believed, this is the harsh indictment. Because remember, um, what Jesus is trying to convey here is this isn't about who you are. If you can recall back to the time that we talked through this and taught through this in the fall, uh, we talked about Nicodemus in a little bit more detail. There we explained that he was not just a Pharisee, that he was not just a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling members of the Sanhedrin. It was not that he was one of the old, wise ruling members of that Sanhedrin. It was not that he was just a teacher of Israel, but he is given the title, the teacher of Israel, a select group of the select group of the select group. This led us to our conclusion then that if religion could get you in, this guy was in, right? He, if anybody would have this together, he should have had this together. And yet Jesus grabs his attention and says, even all of that, you do not have this because you do not believe. You've made this about what you can do and that is hopeless. This is about what I can do for you. This is about who I am and thus who I can make you to be. Belief is the central issue in this text. Um, I like to quote from Dr. Tom Consul so much I included in a slide. It says this, Nicodemus had failed to understand, verse nine, but his more serious error was his failure to believe Jesus's testimony about new birth. Yeah, he's failed once, but he's failed even more significantly by not believing this new birth. But our patient Lord uh, continues with that conversation and with this unbelieving Nicodemus. Look down at verse 12. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is simple logic. If I've told you something simple about, how you, uh, about a concept, how can I move on to something complex if you don't understand it? This is like reminiscence of me every time I end up in a conversation with Chris and people about Star Wars, right? If you didn't get my reference to Lando, what's the point about me trying to explain Sheev Palpatine? I have no idea who those characters are. I just Googled Star Wars characters and listed the first two that is there. I'm actually more saddened by the fact that Chris and I have moved far enough in our relationship that he's no longer annoyed when I purposely mistake Star Wars for Star Trek. That was a sweet season of life. (laughs) But we were past that, alas. Uh, Oh, well, maybe one day we can find something else to return to it. But this is is not all that complicated. It is a very kind of simple statement. If I've told you about earthly things, if I've told you about the simple matters, how can I expound upon that if you don't even understand what is simple? What's the, apparently for Nicodemus, there is no purpose in further education about the process of salvation until he knows to receive that salvation. Further revelation or explanation will not bring him to salvation, only the experience of it will. I think this is so true of so many of us, right? Or people that we know. Because either we ourselves have said this in our past times, or we know people who said it. Chris used this uh, example a couple weeks ago when he spoke of the guy who said, um, though his friend who said, uh, I'm waiting for a miracle, right? If I would just see Jesus do a miracle, if I just see God do something that miraculous that I can't understand, then I'll come to faith. That wasn't what Nicodemus was waiting on. Nicodemus here is kind of more ennobilizing the people that we relate to that say, well, if only God would explain this to me. If I would only know more about this, then maybe I would put my faith in him. You know, if I could explain God away in all scientific terms or all rational terms or all philosophical terms, then I'll believe. If I just knew more, I'll believe. 
This was the sad state of a former neighbor of mine, a guy named Jimmy, um, who Jimmy would say in our conversations that he, he was just waiting for God to, to, to show him how he could solve all the social injustices, how he could solve world hunger. His point was basically, if I knew how God could do all that, then I'll put my faith in him. But he wasn't convinced that of it. He didn't know how, so he never put his faith. But you see, Jimmy's problem was he was waiting to see how God can solve a problem in the world without knowing God as a problem solver. He was waiting to know something that was unknowable without knowing God. He was waiting for some experience to then allow him to jump in rather than the offer of the experience that's at hand. And so I say this, this, if this is you today, then hear my words, don't be a Jimmy, both in reference to applications of both of those. Don't miss out that if you're here thinking that there's something that you're waiting to experience, that there's something that you're waiting to know, and there's something that you're waiting to do to put your life right before you come to Christ and put your faith in him, then stop it. Today, hear the claim from scripture that this is the truth. It's not about what you do. It is all about how you respond to what he has done. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're waiting for some experience to understand it, then stop and just experience him now. Put your faith in Jesus, if you're waiting for a solution to your problem, you're missing out on the solution. Jesus is the solution. Experience him. But Nicodemus doesn't get this either. He hasn't put his faith in Jesus at this point. And what if the story stopped here? What if it didn't go on any further? What a bleak, sad story. What if Jesus has spent all this time explaining the process of salvation only for Nicodemus not to understand the process of salvation? And so Jesus just concludes and says, all right, Nick, well, I got nothing more to you to say. I've explained the simple. I've explained the process. How can I get on to other things, higher things? Why don't you go home? You know, come back when you're reborn. Come back when, you, when you've truly experienced the process of salvation. Then I'll tell you more things. But that's the patient love from our Father and from Jesus that says to us and says to Nicodemus, I'm not done yet. Because a shift happens here. Verse 13 puts a, a marked change in our conversation because where Jesus has spent all this beginning conversation talking about the process of salvation and Nicodemus has missed it, now he is going to begin talking about the person of salvation. In verse 13, he starts talking about himself not as a witness or as teacher, um, but as, not as one who tells people about being born again, but as the very one who came from heaven to do something so that people can be born again. He's no longer talking about the process of salvation. Now he talks about the person of salvation, the realization in the truth experienced right here in front of Nicodemus. You know, a silly illustration, but one of the times that I, uh, I know that I experienced this process of it's not as good just to know it is as good just to experience and know who he is. Uh, was the first time a church member uh, explained to me what uh, Wagyu beef was and the cows and the process of producing it. And he, he went on and on and told me the kind of the processes of why it was a better meat. And it got my mouth salivating and I, as a meat lover, got very excited for it. Uh, and I was like, yes, this is good. But then... 
A couple weeks later, he actually came and cooked something for me and gave it to me. And I experienced it firsthand. And boy, oh boy, there was nothing compared to him just describing the process when it was me experiencing what it actually was right in front of me. Um, I'm sorry, I got off on meat. It's hard to talk about spiritual heavenly things and not talk about the gracious good gift of meat to us and steak. But that is a silly illustration and it falls short, obviously, but it does convey, I think, hopefully what is supposed to be conveyed here is that there's enough, enough with this process. Now know that it's me. I am the one, it is the person of salvation that Jesus comes to explain. It's not just simply being born again. Now it is because of me, new birth is possible. So that, with that in mind, let's jump back into verse 13. He says, uh, Jesus' words, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is fitting, kind of remembering verse 12. How can I explain heavenly things? Well, he's answering some part of his own rhetorical question, saying it's because I'm the one who came from heaven. This is why I can explain heavenly things, is because I have come from heaven. No man has simply gone up into heaven, but I, who is from heaven, come down to earth to do what man cannot do, but only what I can do. I have the authority because I was in heaven with my Father, and I've come down to do only what I can do. I think this is the good news. This is the good news of the shift from the process, what needs to happen with us, to the person, what I'm going to do for you, is that Jesus claims to be the person who can, namely, satisfy the wrath of God, the punishment we deserve. Jesus claims that upon himself. And he does so using a specific title, Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, we've run into this title already before in our time and our conversations through John. In fact, in John 1, 51, uh, Jesus, again with another one of these truly, truly, I say to you uh, statements, claims this title for himself. It says this in chapter 1, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the, what? Son of man. Now, interestingly, this is in response to Nathaniel's proclamation we already have read and covered in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. So in the proclamation of the Son of God, Jesus in one hand says, yes, I am, and I am also the Son of Man. These are two terms we'll see throughout the rest of our time in uh, the book of John. Both proclaimed by Jesus himself and by others about him, this term, Son of Man, Son of God. So what is it with these terms? Specifically here, why does he uh, invoke this term, this title, Son of Man? What is it here to emphasize? Well, on our cursory understanding or our first glance, uh, it is simply that uh, the Son of Man communicates his humanity, meaning he was born of a man, just like born as a human, just like all of us would say, um, yeah, I'm a son of so-and-so. He says, I'm a son of Mary. She was a human, I'm a human. For those hearing that, they would obviously quickly identify with that. Um, for in fact, in their culture, they often used similar terminology to express their own names, that I was this name, son of this name. Uh, so this is, a, uh, this is on one hand, yes, clearly communicating his humanity. But on another hand, um, son of God isn't the only thing that communicates divinity. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, yes, it is that he is claiming divinity, but even the term son of man claims both. We don't have to see them as only claiming simple sides of the argument. 
whereas son of man actually claims both sides of the argument. So whereas Jesus, yes, is trying to communicate he's fully human uh, and fully God. This is what Chris taught about on the hypostatic union a couple weeks ago. Uh, But the son of man is not simply a reference to humanity alone, it is a reference to divinity also. We get this from an Old Testament passage. And Nicodemus would have clearly gotten this as a teacher of Israel, knowing that what Jesus is imploring here is a direct title that comes from a vision that is recorded in in Daniel's book, chapter 7. In verses 13 through 14, I want to read it to you so we can understand where Nicodemus's mind immediately went and where our minds need to go when we hear the title Son of Man. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heavens, there came a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Here it is, the Son of Man having audience in front of the Ancient of Days. This is to pay attention to this role of the Son of Man. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This title, Son of Man, is not just set up for humanity. It is also set up as a title of divinity because to any Jewish audience, they would have seen the language here of coming on the clouds as one that is a, that is a pictorial picture of the hum, the, not just the humanity, but the divine nature. If he can come on the clouds, then surely God himself is the messenger, the sender. He has a divine nature to himself. This is what the claim of Son of Man is also a claim of a divinity It would make sense as he's talking about these heavenly things to reference something coming from the clouds and to say, I am the one who gets to bear witness because I've come and done this for you. This is all, again, about the person of Jesus. But he goes on to explain to Nicodemus and illustrate more to Nicodemus about this title, Son of Man. And he chooses a really interesting and actually rather shocking comparison to son of man. This title he says about himself, he illustrates not from all the passages he could have picked out of Psalms, not from Isaiah uh, pointing at all of the passages that would have been good, but of all passages, he likens or hearkens back to Numbers 21 and pictures himself like a snake, a serpent. Really? Of all the things the son of man is like, he's like a snake? And isn't that how we got in the problem in the first place? Like of all things you're going to go reference, you're going to say you're like a snake? How is this helpful to us? Well, he goes on and says in verse 14, this is how it is helpful for us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. You see, if we jumped back to Numbers uh, 21, verses 4 through 9 say this, from Mount Or, they set out on the way of the Red Sea, talking about Israel, uh, in the Exodus, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, just like the people of Israel always did. And they spoke out against God and against Moses. It's hard not to read this in a whiny voice, but why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food that you so graciously provide that we don't need, that is miraculous and is just sign of your provision. We loathe the taste of this food. Here they are grumbling. And clearly they have sinned. Clearly this is improper because the Lord responds in verse 6, he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of people the people of Israel died. Because of their sin, there was judgment. 
Because of their sin, there was punishment. God sent in the serpents to strike. And when people were struck by the serpent, they died. People now realize their own sin that's led to their suffering, and so they cry out. And the people of Moses, uh, then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. You see, the people recognize something true about salvation is that they had a problem. They were the sick ones, they were the ones dying. If you remember back to our decaying video last week, there was an end and they couldn't do anything about it. They had already been bit. They know death is the next step. And so they realize this is because of their sin. So they cry out to the Lord, take this away. What the Lord does is so interesting here. He doesn't just say, okay, guys, snap, no more snakes. Instead, look how he replies to Moses. So Moses prays for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Interesting here, a couple observations that I want to make out of this passage because they relate to the passage we're reading now. The first observation that is so interesting here is that the means of salvation is a picture of the curse itself. Again, isn't it so interesting? I mean, he he could have commanded Moses to do anything, make a cross, lift it up, just put your staff in the ground. It doesn't need anything else. Look upon that. That's what you'll be saved. No, he took the image, the very thing of the curse and grafted it around the pole and projected it for the people to to be viewed upon. The bronze serpent is a picture of the real biting snakes, the curse itself. But not only is the means of salvation a picture of the curse, it's that all that the people had to do, the second observation, to be saved was to look upon God's provision. The only way that they could experience salvation was to not do anything in their own world, in their own strength, in their own might, but rather just to simply respond to look upon the gift that is being given. Because see, they were faced with their sin, which showed them their death. And in response, they needed life. And they couldn't give life, so they needed to respond and look upon the one who was given life. Those two observations. With those in mind, let us return to our text and see how Jesus is portrayed. Because Jesus here is portrayed also like the curse. And as the Son of Man was lifted up, uh, was lifted up, and sorry, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the same way Jesus is being lifted up, he is being lifted up in the same likeness to the serpent being lifted up. God's wrath fell on his people because of their sin. He sent the serpents, his salvation uh, to them, bore the image of the very cursed. And in the same way, Jesus is pictured as this curse, and he offers himself as the solution to salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be what? Sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin for us. This is again why Paul says in Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
The point here that Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you can't do anything about your sin. I will be your sin. I will do what you can't do. I will satisfy the wrath of God by being lifted up on a cross and die a death I don't deserve so that I can give you life. And all you have to do is believe on me to receive that life. So as we close our time together in a way of application, perhaps to those who are here who've never put their faith in Christ, who've never stopped and realized their sin and said, this sin that I have yields separation from you and ultimate death, who've never stopped and heard the proclamation of Jesus saying, it doesn't have to be that way. I have eternal life a life abundance, and I want you to have that now, not by doing something on your own works, but by simply responding to me and the work that I did. If that is you, if you've never placed your faith on Christ, then the words for you this morning are simple. Look to Jesus and live. There's nothing more you need to know. There's nothing more that will make the experience make sense. Simply now is the time to respond and believe. And perhaps for those who have put their faith in Christ, the words and the applications are still the same. Look to Jesus and live. Because just because we've been granted eternal life doesn't mean uh, that because we've expressed already our faith, it doesn't mean that today we still make choices that don't tend to reflect appropriately that belief. And we still claim things inside of our own lives, sin that the Holy Spirit says, this doesn't have place to have root here because I am the only one who should have root here, roots here. And so it is on that, the same proclamation that if we have believed, we need to still today continue on believing, desperate for him to put right all the things that are wrong in our lives. And so that will be our time as we move into a time of invitation. If you've never heard the gospel and never responded to it, then respond today and simply say, I know my sins and I want you to take them away. If you have more questions about that and somebody brought you here to your church, ask them if they know. If they don't know, come, up, come here up front or find somebody at the end of the service and ask, how? Tell me more about this person and this process of salvation. Or maybe it is for uh, you to, to take this time as, as reflection, as praying to the Holy Spirit, work out the things in my life that don't look like this type of belief. Help me be a witness to the people I know I should be a witness to correctly and rightly. Or maybe if you are, are responding and saying, you know what, I want to be a part of a church like this that reminds me of these truths, that is full of a bunch of broken people who are messing it up, but who are encouragingly pointing back towards God's provision for us. And if that's the case, uh, you can come forward. If you've already talked to Lance or the Welcome Home team, we'd love to announce you. Um, if not, we'd love to meet you and get you set up on that process so we can announce you at a later date. But whatever it is and however it responds, let us pray and then let us do that and respond to the Lord. Father God, thank you for your revelation in scripture this morning that proclaims our hopelessness, that shows us in our sin incapable of doing anything about it, that faces us with the inevitability that with sin, with that sin unforgiven, we face death. But Father, thank you that you did not stop there. Thank you that you did not stop halfway through the conversation with Nicodemus. Thank you that you have shown us yet time and time again how you are the provision 
for what we couldn't have provided. Now you are the one just waiting to give life, a life abundant to all who receive. So Father, if we need to confess for the first time, to ask you to save you from our sins, allow us to do so. If we need to confess for the countless time, because the truth that you have still forgiven us for our sins may now be that time. Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the accomplishment of what Jesus done, may it be now that we reflect on how you transform us for your purposes and for your glory. Amen.